Paul LaRuffa had just closed his business for the night. He walked to his car across the parking lot of the Clinton Center, a strip mall where his popular Italian restaurant, Margiolina's, was located. He carried with him $3,500 in cash and a case containing a new laptop. It was about 10.30 when LaRuffa got to his car. He opened the back door of his Chrysler 300M and placed his belongings on the seat. He climbed into the driver's seat and saw a shadow approaching him. That's when the bullets rang out. The window next to me absolutely exploded with the first shot. It was a deafening sound. It just deafened my left ear. Glass shatters all over me. Then there were four more shots. So five shots came in the window and they all hit me. LaRufa leaned over the console to his right and caught a glimpse of someone opening the back door to steal his money and laptop. Realizing he'd been shot, LaRufa pressed his horn. His ears were ringing so much from the gunfire, he could barely hear his horn honk. He staggered into the parking lot and called for help. Two people were in the vicinity and both called 911. One of them sped away in his vehicle before calling, while the other stayed put. LaRufa began to realize the severity of his injuries. Blood was pouring out of him. And I was bleeding out of, out of my chest, and I was bleeding out of at the back. Uh, one of the shots, as, as I guess, it, as I leaned over, it hit me in the in the in the back, in the in the spine, the base of my neck. So I was bleeding out the out the front. I was bleeding out the back. And it was a lot of blood, and I didn't realize at the time, but my lungs were collapsing because of the pressure of the internal bleeding it was crushing my lungs. All I knew was I was running out of breath. And that was scary. The 911 recordings from that night in early September 2002 aren't of the highest quality, but here is a short portion of the call made by the person who stayed behind. Okay, I'm trouble breathing. Okay, sir, try to get him to sit down and not move around. Yeah, In that recording, you can hear LaRufa saying, quote, I don't want to die here. In spite of the injuries to his lungs, stomach, and neck, LaRufa beat the odds and survived. The shooter escaped into the darkness that night. LaRufa's stolen laptop would be recovered seven weeks later. The money would be gone, used to finance a murder spree beyond anyone's imagination. Presented by Law and Crime, this is Chasing Ghosts, the hunt for the DC snipers. In a house a few blocks from Margelina's, on a street named Quiet Brook Lane in Clinton, Maryland, was where single mother of three, Mildred Muhammad, lived with her sister, mother, and children. A month or so after LaRufa was shot, and after the rash of D.C. area sniper shootings had begun, Mildred got a creepy feeling after seeing a car parked outside her home. 
Mildred and a friend of hers pulled up and noticed a dark blue Chevrolet Caprice with tinted windows. Mildred said the two people in the car held up newspapers to shield their faces. It looked very suspicious to her. She called police and left a message, but no one called back. It was the only time she saw that car parked outside her home. Mildred had reason to be paranoid. She had been living in fear for the better part of three years. She feared for her own safety and feared losing her kids again. The cause of those fears was her ex-husband, John Allen Muhammad. John Muhammad was born John Williams on December 31, 1960, in New Orleans. While a toddler, Muhammad's mother moved him and his four siblings to Baton Rouge to be closer to her family. Muhammad's mother died of cancer when he was three years old. He was raised by his aunts in Scotlandville, west of Baton Rouge. Muhammad fathered a son with a girlfriend at a young age. He fathered a second son with his first wife, whom he married in 1981, when he was 20 years old. They would divorce six years later. The following year, he met Mildred. I met John um, going to the store with a friend of mine. And when we came out the store, he put his head in the back window and asked me out on the date. I think I was 24. It was the start of a whirlwind romance, and the pair married less than a year later. They would go on to have three children of their own, a son and two daughters. Muhammad was fanatical about fitness and firearms. He could be intense and mercurial. People who knew him well said it was like he had two personalities, gentle one moment and mean the next. In 1994, after Muhammad got out of the army, the couple moved to Tacoma, Washington. They lived in a rented house with a one-car garage. The couple borrowed $10,000 and opened a car repair business. The idea behind the business was for Muhammad to travel to the customers' homes and fix vehicles on site. Not everything went according to plan because some repairs couldn't be done on site. So Muhammad wound up bringing cars to his home, which cluttered the yard. Nonetheless, the business was solvent. He was the mechanic, and Mildred oversaw the business side. Mildred hired an accountant, and the two became friends. That accountant's name was Isa Nichols. Nichols helped the Muhammads land deals with service fleets, including one small police department. The problem was that John Muhammad was not detail-oriented. He'd leave caps open or wouldn't fasten a bolt someplace, and that caused headaches for customers. He lost the contract with the police department after skipping or forgetting a detail once too often. Stress was building in the marriage, but the tide really turned when John and Mildred Muhammad had an argument about his son from his previous marriage. Muhammad wanted to extend his son's visitation without his ex-wife's consent. Mildred said her husband cooked up a story about how his first wife was abusing their son. I said, well, how do you know that? I mean, what evidence do you have to prove that? And he just looked at me strange at that point. He actually thought I was going to just say, okay. Mildred put her foot down and wouldn't let John keep his son in Tacoma. She took the duffel bag that her husband was packing for his son, walked into the bathroom and locked the door. She spent all night in that bathroom. When she unlocked the door early the next morning, Muhammad was standing by the doorway 
waiting for her to come out. Mildred told her husband that they were taking his son to the airport so that he could make his 10 a.m. flight. Muhammad relented, but it was a tense confrontation, one that Mildred still references as the point of deterioration in their marriage. The pair separated in September 1999, after being together for 12 years. Mildred filed for divorce in December of that year. On February 9, 2000, Muhammad showed up at Mildred's house to see his youngest son, John Jr. Mildred told him he was sleeping, but Muhammad pushed her out of the way in an effort to see his son. Mildred called police, who responded and advised her to file a restraining order. The next confrontation was even worse. We had to talk about visitation for the children. He came over to the house and we went in the garage. He said, we need to talk. Well, my brother was there, so I felt safe to have this conversation with him. He was in the garage and he said, you know, you're not going to raise my children by yourself. You have become my enemy. And as my enemy, I will kill you. So not to be outdone or show any type of fear, I said, well, I've been sleeping with the enemy all this time. What else are you going to do? And that's when he charged at me. I ran in the kitchen where my brother was, and he left. The order of protection that she filed was served about four weeks later. Mildred still agreed to allow her ex-husband to see their children on weekends. One day in late March, the couple's son, John Jr., was sick at school, so his mother picked him up. Later in the school day, Mildred's oldest daughter, Selena, also got sick. She couldn't leave her son to pick up her daughter, so she asked her ex-husband to pick up Selena. Muhammad picked up both daughters at their school. Then he showed up at his ex-wife's house at 3.30 p.m. to pick up their son. He said he wanted to take them clothes shopping. Mildred agreed to let him take the children, but said they needed to be back in two hours because they were going to celebrate their grandmother's birthday as a family. Muhammad never brought him back. It was later learned that Muhammad had borrowed $1,100 and pulled another $500 from the children's accounts and purchased airline tickets from Seattle to Antigua. Mildred wouldn't see her kids again for 18 months. Mildred was depressed, destitute, and her kids were out of the country. The stress and grief consumed her so much that she had to be hospitalized. After she was discharged, she moved to a domestic abuse shelter. Her friend and former accountant, Isa Nichols, was the shelter's bookkeeper, and she helped her friend get a room there. Mildred lived at that shelter for a year. She would regularly call law enforcement to see whether they had made any progress finding her children, but they never had anything new to report. She eventually moved to the other side of the country to join her mother, who was now living with her sister. Mildred took a job as a nurse and made Clinton, Maryland her permanent home. Meanwhile, Muhammad and his kids lived in Antigua under fake names. Muhammad obtained a fake Wyoming driver's license, and he and his kids moved to the city of St. John's. Muhammad wouldn't stick around in one place for long. He would leave for days and weeks at a time whenever he was low on money and leave his children behind. 
but Muhammad figured out a way to earn money to keep a roof over their heads. He learned how to falsify birth certificates and passports. He'd make ends meet by creating fake documents on other people's behalf in exchange for money. People in Antigua who wanted to immigrate to the United States illegally would pay Muhammad for fake documents. Investigators in Antigua estimated that Muhammad earned $60,000 with his black market business. He would move back and forth from Antigua to the U.S. every few weeks. When he stayed in Tacoma, he worked on cars and couch surfed. He always had a hustle to fall back on. Muhammad assumed fake identities and created fake stories about his profession and background. Muhammad would tell people he was a retired track athlete. He told others he had served in special forces. Neither story was true. He did serve in the army for a while, a total of 17 years. Muhammad served with combat engineers who specialized in clearing mines and blowing up bridges. He attained sharpshooter status with the M16. Sharpshooter is a grade higher than marksman and lower than expert. But he had disciplinary problems throughout his military career. In 1982, while a guardsman, he was court-martialed for disobeying orders, punching a sergeant, and stealing a tape measurer and going AWOL. The latter two charges were dropped, but Muhammad was still fined $100 and received a seven-day suspended jail sentence. It got worse almost a decade later during the first Gulf War. He clashed regularly with a higher-ranking non-commissioned officer while in Saudi Arabia. More than once, the two nearly came to blows. Then came an accusation that Muhammad had purposely set off a thermite grenade inside a tent full of soldiers who were sleeping. Muhammad claimed that he had been brutalized when he was taken into custody. Mildred said he was never the same after he got home from Saudi Arabia. Muhammad was cleared on all charges related to the grenade incident. He was honorably discharged in 1994 after attaining the rank of sergeant. Not long after that, he converted to the Nation of Islam and changed his name. Six years later, while in the Caribbean and while his three children were still with him, Muhammad befriended a woman he had helped enter the United States. Her name was Una James. She was a 30-something seamstress when she met Muhammad in the fall of 2000. Una was the mother of a 15-year-old son. His name was Lee Boyd Malveaux. Una was originally from Jamaica. She wound up in Antigua in January 1999, where she worked 12-hour days at a roadside grill. She had dreams of moving to Florida and starting a new life there. Malveaux was enrolled at a Seventh-day Adventist high school when he moved with his mother to Antigua. Lee Malveaux was moved around a lot, Sometimes his mother would leave him behind with friends while she'd go find another place to live. Malvo would start to get comfortable in one place, and that's when his mother would reappear and take him back. That happened numerous times. Not long after she met Muhammad, Una James told her son that she was leaving him again. He would have to remain in Antigua by himself for a while, but she'd send for him later. She told her landlord that she was going back to Jamaica to visit her sick mom, but she was actually headed to Florida. Her new friend, John Allen Muhammad, arranged that for her. Muhammad told Una that her son would have to wait his turn. He couldn't go with her. 
So Malva was left alone in a small house in Antigua. The rent wasn't paid, and the landlord cut off the utilities. Malvo had to live there by himself, with no running water or electricity. In March 2001, Mohammed landed in trouble. He was caught in the act of buying an airline ticket under an assumed name and selling it to someone attempting to enter the United States illegally. Mohammed went to jail. He would later escape from that St. John's jail. Security was lacking. He simply walked out when no one was looking. A month later, he attempted another airline stunt. He and two Jamaican women and a little girl flew to St. Martin and then Florida. They were stopped in Miami. The women and the girl were turned away and Muhammad was apprehended, but he'd be released due to a lack of evidence. Muhammad continued bouncing back and forth from the Caribbean to the U.S. He'd leave Antigua for good on May 31st, 2001. He and his three kids were joined by a 15-year-old boy that Muhammad had met when he helped Una. It was Lee Boyd Malvo. Muhammad checked on Malvo while the teen was living in that empty house in Antigua. He took pity on him, so he packed up Malvo's belongings with little he had and took the boy with him. Malvo traveled under an assumed name, Lindbergh Williams, the name of Muhammad's son from his first marriage. Muhammad, his three children, and Malvo visited Una James. She worked at a Red Lobster in Fort Myers, Florida, and paid a co-worker to marry her so she could attain U.S. citizen status. Malvo was briefly reunited with his mother, but he longed to be back with Muhammad. After leaving Malvo behind in Florida, Muhammad took his kids to Washington State that summer. They eventually wound up at the Lighthouse Mission in Bellingham, Washington, about two hours north of Tacoma. It was a Christian homeless shelter. Reverend Al Archer, a U.S. Navy veteran, ran the shelter. He noticed Muhammad and his kids right away. It was extremely rare for a father to show up at the shelter with his kids. Archer made a point to go see the family in the chapel. Archer saw that the kids were happy, and Muhammad seemed to have a believable story. He said he went through a bitter divorce, attained full custody of his kids, and was trying to get his life back on track. The shelter was occupied mostly with hard-on-their-luck substance abusers or men suffering from mental illness, so it was refreshing for Archer to encounter someone who seemed so grounded and laser-focused on his children. I was very impressed with John when I first met him. I got to know him as a guy that was thoroughly, thoroughly concerned for the welfare of his children. And I guess that was one of the reasons that I kind of attached my attention to him and his activities. Archer personally drove Muhammad to the state offices to apply for government aid. Archer treated the kids to hot chocolate while Muhammad got his affairs in order. Muhammad landed a job. All seemed to be going well. But the problem started when the paperwork that Muhammad filled out contained inconsistencies. The application was red-flagged and picked up by someone at the Division of Fraud Investigations. That investigator knew of the John Williams case, the suspect from Tacoma who had taken his kids and left without a trace. 
he thought John Williams and John Allen Muhammad might be the same man. Another source of suspicion for authorities was the fact that Muhammad, with Archer's help, enrolled his three children at a local public school. The names Muhammad gave school officials did not match with the names that the children gave their teachers, according to Archer. Muhammad's name was entered into a court database, and the order of protection filed by Mildred was uncovered. Bellingham was in Whatcom County, so an order to pick up the children was sent to the sheriff's office. A Whatcom sheriff's detective who was notified of the order picked up the phone and called Mildred in Maryland. I was jumping up and down and screaming, and my brother-in-law came downstairs and said, what's going on? I said, they found my children. I get on the phone, because I hadn't heard their voices in 18 months. And you know those paddles that they use in the hospital to shock the heart back, to bring people back to life? That's how I felt. The detective tracked down Muhammad at the Lighthouse Mission. He left a message, and soon thereafter, Muhammad showed up at the station in person. Muhammad went there expecting to be arrested, but he wasn't. He was told there was no warrant for his arrest. Muhammad was free to go, but he still had a court hearing to show up for. On Tuesday, September 4, 2001, Muhammad appeared in Pierce County Superior Court in Tacoma. The proceeding was to implement a court order from eight months earlier that awarded Mildred custody of her three children. At first, Muhammad wasn't absorbing all that was happening. He kept trying to speak up, and the commissioner kept cutting him off. The commissioner explained that his ex-wife had full custody of the children, and what Muhammad did was illegal. Now the children's mother could leave town and hide from him, and there was essentially nothing he could do about it. Muhammad got angry. The commissioner asked Muhammad whether he understood, and Muhammad replied, quote, Yes, I am not able to see my children. After the hearing was over, Child Protective Services gave Mildred her children back. She boarded a plane that night and flew home to Maryland, never to see Muhammad's face in person again, until his murder trial more than two years later. On October 3rd, Muhammad returned to the mission. He stayed for a week and left. Then he returned again. By this point, Archer was growing deeply suspicious of him. Archer would later tell his family, quote, Someday, you're going to read about this guy in the newspapers. Meanwhile, the one who had an opposite opinion of Muhammad, the one who idolized him, Lee Boyd Malvo, was still in Florida, and he got back in contact with Muhammad. Malvo obtained some money, possibly through a wire transfer, and boarded a bus for Washington State. On October 20th, 2001, Archer returned from an out-of-town trip and saw Muhammad again in the chapel of the Lighthouse Mission. This time, he was joined by Lee Boyd Malvo. The teen stood 5 feet 5 inches tall and weighed about 120 pounds. Muhammad, who was 6 foot 1, introduced Muhammad to Archer as the son he had previously told him about. Again, Archer was skeptical. They didn't look anything alike, and Malvo had a Jamaican accent. Malvo also looked way too young to be the son that Muhammad had mentioned to him. Well, 
I knew that John had told me in earlier conversations about his son, and his son was a lot older, the one that he had told me about. He was a lot older than this kid. This person he's calling his son is a kid. But suspicions were all Archer had, and the mission was the last safety net before living on the street. Archer wasn't going to have Muhammad live on the street, especially not if it meant that 16-year-old Malvo would join him there. So Muhammad continued to live at that mission. He found a job at an apartment complex in Sumas, outside Bellingham. He struck up a friendship with a complex owner, Greg Grant, who couldn't understand why Muhammad was living at a shelter. So one day, Grant decided to politely ask him what led him down the road he was on. One of the days that it was out at our apartment complex, I actually asked him, I said, all right, I don't understand how someone that presents himself like you do, it's obvious that you're well-educated, you present yourself well, you're clean cut, you're dressed decent. I'm curious as to what you're doing in the Lighthouse Mission. So he took a few minutes out of his day to explain to me that he basically was rebounding from a divorce. And he said, you know, it was an ugly divorce. He said there was a battle over the kids. It's just sent me for a loop. And he said, I'm just on the rebound. So I thought, okay, that's a reasonable excuse. And he's going through some hard times. Months went by and Muhammad continued working at Grant's apartment complex. Muhammad gave Grant and the tenants no concerns whatsoever. Our apartment complex probably had 17 or 20 units, and the feedback I was getting from people is that, hey, he cleans up that for himself, he's respectful, and everybody seemed to just really like him. Then came the afternoon of December 14th. Al Archer got a call he'll never forget. One day, my phone rang, and I answered it, and a lady said, I'm Lee Malvo's mother, and I'm at the bus depot in Bellingham, and I'm here to get my son. And I, I said, lady, you're the person I've been wanting to talk to and clear up what's going on here. Archer showed up at the bus station and met Una. She had quit her job and left Florida to reunite with her son. Archer suggested she call police and tell them that Lee was a runaway and that she was his mother. Archer got Una a hotel room and placed a call to police. That night, around 7 p.m., two Bellingham police officers went to the mission and found Malvo. He was brought to the police station where Una was waiting for him. Malvo was happy to see his mother, but unhappy about being away from Muhammad. Archer took mother and son to breakfast the next day. Archer was pleased with the result. Malvo was with his mother, and Muhammad, the man he suspected was a kidnapper, had seemingly disappeared. But police started to focus more of their attention on Malvo and his mother. They had all sorts of questions about Malvo because his stories kept changing the more they spoke to him. Police contacted the U.S. Border Patrol. The next day, a supervisory agent took over the case and went to the women's shelter to interview Una. He saw her loading her belongings into a taxi. After she told him that she couldn't supply any immigration papers, the agent arrested her. He later arrested Malvo, who by then was reunited with Muhammad. The two were found at a local YMCA. The agent called police about Muhammad, but by the time police showed up at the local Y, Muhammad was gone. 
mother and son were locked up for about six weeks. Then on January 23, 2002, Malvo and his mother were released after posting bail. Border Patrol and the Immigration and Naturalization Service would blame each other for the error. Una James and Lee Boyd Malvo split up soon after their release. By February, Malvo and Muhammad were paired up again. The two of them moved in with Earl Dancy Jr., a friend of Muhammad's. Dancy had a lot of what Muhammad was interested in. Guns. Dancy owned several semi-automatic rifles and handguns, including a 45 caliber Sig Sauer. Dancy took pity on Muhammad because he believed he was a desperate man who was trying to get his children back. He didn't know the real story. Muhammad took Malvo to a local sportsman's club where they would practice shooting. Muhammad coached him. He used positive enforcement often, but he would also punish Malvo when he made mistakes. The punishment was physical training, usually running laps or doing push-ups. Malvo never complained. He loved the discipline because it had been missing in his life for so long. Archer and others had noticed that strange dynamic between Muhammad and Malvo while the two had been at the mission together the previous December. We started noticing his relationship with Lee, and it was that Lee was was like a little soldier that would follow John everywhere he went, but he would always stay five or six feet behind John as they walked wherever they went. Lee was always behind John. Earl Dancy was generous. He had no problems letting Muhammad and Malvo stay with him and use his firearms. He also let Malvo play his video game console, and he played Halo constantly. Halo is a first-person shooting game that offers the player a sniper option, and that's the option Malvo always selected. On February 16th, Muhammad decided it was time for Malvo to pay someone a visit. Muhammad took his friend's 45 caliber Sig Sauer and went to the Roosevelt Heights neighborhood on Tacoma's east side. They walked to a house at the corner of East 34th Street and East Roosevelt Avenue. The home was painted yellow and it overlooked the Puyallup River and the city's dockyards. The home belonged to Joseph Nichols and his wife, Isa, the close friend of Muhammad's sworn enemy, Mildred. Muhammad knew that Isa Nichols was the one who helped Mildred get back on her feet. Nichols and her husband weren't home that night. Nichols left to pick up her 13-year-old daughter from her friend's house. But Kenya Cook was at the house. She was Isa Nichols' 21-year-old niece. Cook was about to give her six-month-old baby a bath. Nichols and her daughter were expected home any minute. There was food simmering on the stove. At 7 p.m., the doorbell rang. Cook went downstairs to see who it was. It was dark outside and she couldn't see who was on the porch through the window. It was Lee Boyd Malvo. Cook opened the door and she was shot in the face. Isa and her daughter, Tammy, showed up moments later. Isa stayed in the car and Tammy walked to the front door. She was going to walk through the house and open the garage door from the inside. But when she approached the front door, she was surprised to see that it was open. 
she got closer and saw her cousin, Kenya Cook, lying in a pool of blood. Malvo used that Sig Sauer pistol that belonged to Muhammad's friend, Earl Dancy. But that wouldn't be learned until later, much later. The Kenya Cook murder case went cold. Nobody had a clue who killed her. Investigators would eventually learn that Isa Nichols was Malvo's intended target. There would be many more shootings carried out by Malvo and Muhammad. The shootings started in the Pacific Northwest and continued in the Southwest, the Southeast, and the Mid-Atlantic. But the murderous tandem would get their hands on a more powerful weapon before they'd carry out most of that rampage. Bullseye Shooter Supply was a gun store in Tacoma that Muhammad and Malvo liked to go to. In early July 2002, the store got a Bushmaster rifle. Muhammad used to own one just like it, so he knew it well. The weapon on display at Bullseye had a 16-inch barrel. A day or two after the weapon arrived at the store, the dealer began upgrading it. A rubber hand grip was added, then a tripod, a laser system, and a holographic gun sight. It was on the counter inside the store, strategically placed so that every shopper could see it. With a Bushmaster, even a novice shooter could fire a kill shot from far away, 50 yards, 100 yards, 200 yards. Muhammad knew that, and he found a way to steal that rifle without anyone noticing until it was gone. Coming up on Chasing Ghosts, the hunt for the DC snipers. He asked what was so important about it, and I said, you know, take a good look. I think you're looking at one of the guys that's doing the shootings here in Washington, D.C. But he kept saying, I hurt, I hurt, I hurt. I realized, of course, it was, it was a gunshot. Chasing Ghosts is presented by Law & Crime. Music and production by Corey Hiltman. All 911 and dispatch calls were provided by the National Law Enforcement Museum in Washington, D.C. You may follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Holt Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. Chasing Ghosts is available on Law & Crime's website, as well as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get podcasts.